Today's reading comes from Genesis chapter 14. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anir, Eshel, and Mamre take their share. This is the word of God. You may be seated. In the 90s, there was a band called the Spin Doctors. And they had a song called Two Princes. And if you've seen a 90s movie, you've heard the song. The basic premise of it is that there's this gal and she has to pick between two guys. He calls them two princes. Um, The story that we just read here about Abram, he doesn't have two princes, but he has two kings who are before him. That's what I said now. Abram won a great war, but his greatest battle would not be the fighting. It would be in the victory. It's It's not so much... Um, about who these two real historical men were, but what they represented to Abram. Both had a blessing. One represents the man he was and the world he came from. The, the desire to make himself his own savior, his own blessing. The other, um, the other is the man he's called to be. One, two kings kneel before you, that's what I said now. You, you beloved, constantly have two kingdoms before you as well. What are you choosing? Last time on Patriarchs, I said last week, this is kind of like a series, kind of a TV series. So last time on Patriarchs. Um, We are in this series called The Patriarchs. The Patriarch is a male founder and leader of a people. And of the Hebrew people, we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, This is who God chose to lead the people of Israel, to start the people of Israel, who would be a blessing to the whole world. We believe because they believed and it was credited to them as righteousness. We've been following along with Abraham and we're not even to the point where his name is Abraham. It's still Abram. He has been called by God from Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia. He was a man of the world. He was a man of a people who had worshipped the moon, but he was called by God to leave his people and to go to the land that God would show him. So far, His life has been marked by partial obedience. He goes part of the way, but with family. And then he goes the rest of the way, once again, with family. And then there's the division between him and his nephew, Lot. And then God speaks to him once more. In the last chapter, we saw a difference in the life of Abram. Instead of of deciding or fighting over the the good fertile land, he leaves that to his nephew and he stays in the land that God has shown him. 
God then blesses him and repeats the promise that he had made to him. Then in chapter 14, it is a chapter of first. We have the first war recorded in the Bible. The first war, the first victory, it's the first path through the promised land that the people of Israel would also do when they come back after the, after the exodus. It is also the first mention of a priest of God Most High and the first mention of tithing. One thing our race, the human race, keeps getting wrong is that we don't understand where the real battle is coming from. Now today, you're not Abram. You are not fighting a literal war to get your nephew back, but you are constantly in battles of a spiritual nature. You are constantly at war with the three mortal enemies of your soul, the devil, his angels, the world, and your own sinful nature. And the choices you make make all the difference. But the real threat is hidden within the, ba- within the battle. The real threat for Abraham wasn't fighting against the northern kings who had swept through his land, who had defeated greater powers than he. The real threat would happen in victory when the king of Sodom comes to him and offers him the spoils of war. Often when you think you win, you've really lost because you, of the way you act in victory. How many bargains with God have been abandoned? Those little bargains of, oh God, when I get this job, I'm really going to start going to church. I'm really going to start tithing. Then you get that new job and you're like, I didn't, I didn't promise anything. Oh Lord, if we get this house, we're going to have Bible studies in it every week. And it goes on years without even thinking about that. You know, truly we shouldn't make such oaths. We should let our yes be yes and our no be no. If God is putting on your heart to have a Bible study, you don't have to wait to get a house. Have it in your apartment. If God is putting on your heart to tithe, then do so in faith. Or how about those who, when they get what they really want, they quickly forget the Lord? How many people, the worst day of their life will not be when they lose everything, but when they've gained everything. And in the agony of their ecstasy, their soul will be drowned. It is truly in victory our soul is more tested than in defeat. It is in victory when the king of Sodom shows up at the door saying, you can have, you can have all the spoils. Synthony Hamill in the publication The Village Voice had said this about three celebrities that she personally knew. She had written this in 1990. She said, I pity celebrities. No, I do. The minute a person becomes a celebrity is the same minute he or she becomes a monster. Sylvester Stallone, Bruce Willis, and Barbara Streisand were once perfectly pleasant human beings with whom you might lunch on a slow Tuesday afternoon. But now they've become supreme beings and their wrath is awful. It's not what they had in mind. When God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish and giggles merrily when you suddenly realize you want to kill yourself. All their fantasies had been realized, yet the reality was still the same. If they were miserable before, they were twice as miserable now. Because the giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness, had happened, and nothing changed. They were still them. The disillusionment turned them into howling and insufferable. Abraham, 
Abram, I talked about this before. You, you read through the scriptures, the Old Testament, without reading the New Testament. You watch the videos, and you might think that the story of Abram is a story about a people gaining possession of a land and becoming great or becoming wealthy. And then you get to Hebrews chapter 11 that talks about Abraham by faith. Abraham by faith. He, wasn't looking, he wasn't looking for a physical city, but one who the author and builder was the Lord. And here's our evidence right here as we get into chapter 14. If Abraham wants money, and if he wants possessions, if he wants a land for himself, it's in his grasp. The king of Sodom didn't, didn't conquer those four nations. He did. And when the king of Sodom comes up to him and tells him, you can have the plunder, it seems generous. It's really not. Because it wasn't the king of Sodom's victory. It was Abram's victory. Or of course, it wasn't Abram's victory. It was the Lord's. So if, if that's what he wants, he can take it. But at this moment, he refused to be his own deliverer. He refuses to take second best when God is offering him so much more than simply land and title and riches. No, he truly, what he truly wants is he wants the Lord. The battle belongs to the Lord. That's what I told you last week, but I want to tell you this week, so does the victory. Last time I reminded you that the battle belongs to the Lord. Today I want to tell you that so does the victory. So many times after we've received from the Lord, we will automatically take credit and worst of all, glory for the victory ourselves. And that will make us dismissive of the Lord's hand in it. And we will not think, how should I now act now that I've been brought to such a position? That was Esther. God's not mentioned in all of the book of Esther, but the presence of God is felt. When Mordecai writes to her after she says, no, I'm going to pass on talking to the king. He says, who knows, you've been brought to royal position for such a time as this. We forget who is truly behind our successes. There's a saying, what would you have tomorrow if all you had tomorrow was what you thank God for today? Abram, at this point in his life, he has been growing in faith. And when he is presented between two kings, he decides he would rather have friendship with the Lord rather than friendship with the world. In this last half of chapter 14, Abram has two kings before him. Both of them have blessings. He only accepts one. So we might ask, why doesn't he accept both of these blessings? Because he can't. We think that we can. We think we can have best of both worlds. We can live and, and, and love, love the things of this world but still somehow serve the Lord. It's an impossibility. You can't serve two masters. 1 John chapter 2, starting with verse 15 do not love the world or the things in the world. This has been an issue for the faithful people of God from the beginning until God takes us home is not to love the world or the things in this world. How do you know if you love the world or the things in this world? Because when they're taken away, you will mourn after them. Not just sad, not disappointed. You mourn after the things of this world when they are taken away like it was your child rough. Because it's hard to say to somebody who's lost a lot that your attitude is ungodly. But it is. In 2008, when there was the major recession that we were going through, I was working at Target. I remember I went into the break room. I say all this, that when I tell you that Oprah was on, it wasn't my choice. Don't judge me. Oprah was on. And, uh, and she had, she had uh, with her um, this, uh, this couple. It was a pastor and his wife who were retired. And like a lot of people during the recession, their retirement was basically cut in half. And they were weeping. 
I was like, what a great, what a great testimony for all the world that you love your money so much that you're weeping over it. And Susie Orman, of all people, had to pat them on the back and say, you still have a lot. You should be thankful for this. And I'm like, oh, that, oh, that hurts. You know you love the world. You know you love the things of this world when you mourn when they are taken away or the thought of them being taken away cows you into submission. We are going to enter into a time. We are entering into a time. We've been entering into a time when... If you decide to stand for the Lord, you will lose something for it. If you decide to stand for righteousness, you will lose something for it. I don't say this as a pie-in-the-sky type of a thing, but when when your employer finds out you're not okay with all the LGBTQ, AIII plus agenda, you might lose your job. If you decide to go by your own conscience, just like a couple years ago, you may have lost your job if you decided you didn't want your employer to make your medical decisions for you. Do you not love the world or the things in this world? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world, and the world is passing away. That is what Cynthia Hamill was talking about in the the village voice, is that these three individuals, they received everything they had hoped for. And this was supposed to make things okay. No one's going to make fun of Barbara Streisand's nose because she's a big movie star. Nobody's going to make fun of Sylvester Stallone's accent because he's rocky. And then we have Bruce Willis, his problems with his marriage. They're going to be all okay. But then they got fame and nothing changed. They were still empty inside because this world is passing away. It doesn't matter how much you get of it, it's still hollow. This world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. We are addicted to attention in this nation. Actually, probably the world. The lengths that people will go to for attention are outrageous. Outrageous. You wouldn't wish the things that people do for attention on your worst enemy. But people gladly do these things because they want fame, they want notoriety. It's because they love the things of this world, but it's passing away. I mean, remember MySpace? That's silly, right? I remember going to a, a comic book convention. I'm a huge nerd, and it's not a big surprise. And I remember somebody telling me that they were MySpace famous. I mean, that's pretty funny, isn't it? And he was so proud of it, wanted me to... Whatever we did on MySpace back then, did we friend people? I don't know. It's passing away. You know, you encourage your kids, right, when they're in high school and they're in sports and they are just like, they're living their life for this, their, their grades are going bad. You're like, okay, it's just temporary. And they're like, no, no, we could make state. Well, who made state last year? I don't know. You know who's going to remember if you make state this year, next year? Nobody. The things of this world, they're passing away. But if you give a glass of cold water to one of the Lord's sons and daughters, 20,000 years from now, while you're hanging out with Jesus Christ, he'll be like, you remember? You remember when my, when my son was thirsty and you gave him a drink of cold water? I do. I remember it. Along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Abram didn't want the things of this world. He wanted friendship with God. And God was not ashamed to be called his God. We find out who, who Abram truly trusts for his sustenance, his victory, and, and, and everything to him. 
and what he truly loves as he chooses between these two kings. One, the king of Sodom, one, the king of Sodom, and two, the king of Salem. I'm going to do that in reverse order. The king of the king of Salem first, Melchizedek, verses 18 through 20. Melchizedek, starting in verse 18 of chapter 14, it says here, and Melchizedek, king of Salem. Melchizedek is a very interesting, he's probably the most mysterious, most mysterious person in all of the scripture. He pops up, he does something amazing, and then he disappears. Um, he is a real person. Many people believe, some people, I shouldn't say many people, some people believe that he is a Christophany, that's an appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. However, there's no biblical proof from this. He is, however, an illustration of the priestly anointing that was on Christ. His history is left vague, and it is vague for a reason. He has no father and no mother that is mentioned in a part of the Bible where it wants to tell us everybody's father and mother to whatever generation. Once we get to Jacob, and it comes to the lineage of, of uh, Esau, it tells us about, like, I, I, I don't know, I was counting it the other day. It was like five times that Esau is Edom. I was like, this is useful. I wish I had read the Bible, Genesis, through Revelations when I first started reading. Because there's things like that that the, that the writer of Scripture is getting us ready for. Because there's other parts where we'll talk about Edom. And then we should be remembering Edom is Esau. Because they told us like five times, Edom is Esau. What happened before this and after his life is not recorded either. For all intents and purposes, narratively speaking, he is eternal. And he is both a king and a priest. This will not be repeated in Israel's kingdom life. The king was not to be the priest. There was a, there was a, there was a big no-no for the king to try to even act like the priest. There was one righteous king of Judah named Uzziah. Uzziah was a righteous king. I want to repeat that. He was a righteous king, but he decided he was going to step out of his role and start burning incense in the temple. And the priests come to him, and they start confronting him. He starts raging at them, and God strikes him with leprosy until the day he dies. But we have Melchizedek. There's something unique about him. He is both a king and a priest. In Psalm 110, verse 4, I don't suppose you can, put, you can get that ready, could you? We've got like some new software going on, and we're going to test it out today. Psalm 110, verse 4. I didn't even like give this to them. We'll see how fast they can um, get it ready. Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So already here in the, New Test in the Old Testament, David, um, King David writes by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a prophecy about Messiah, that he will be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. In Hebrews, the author will anchor this to the person of Jesus Christ, that this is speaking of Jesus Christ. And this is the thing I think is amazing about, about David. David is king. But when he writes the Psalms, he says, the Lord is my shepherd, making himself a sheep. That if there's one thing he asks for, the one thing he desires from the Lord is that he might dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We see right here, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews chapter 7. Now this was a bit of a difficult thing for me because to preach on Melchizedek, you really have to go to Hebrews chapter 7. I'm going to be going through Hebrews chapter 7. If you're following along with me in your Bible, you're going to want to put your finger over in Hebrews chapter 7 because most of what I'm going to say about 
Melchizedek, as I explain the scripture here in verses 18 through 20, is going to come from Hebrews chapter 7, because scripture interprets scripture. That is the surest way you understand the scripture, is you see other scripture that relates to it. Scripture interprets scripture. I said before, he's a real person. I was, so I was saying a struggle for me is not just to preach verse by verse through Hebrews chapter 7, but that would extend this sermon to supper time or a couple more weeks. And, and, and one day I want to preach through Hebrews, and I don't want anybody saying, oh, you already preached chapter 7. So what I'm drawing from as I explain 18 through 20 comes from chapter 7. And as you're going along with me, you can see in chapter, um, chapter 7 of Hebrews um, what I am saying here. We have his name, Melchizedek, um, chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High, met Abram returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. I, 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 just, I just want to point out, I love the vernacular that the author of Hebrews says, not the battle, but the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Verse 2 of chapter 7. And to him, Abraham appointed a tenth of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means. And then he is also the king of Salem, which is king of peace. Let's go back to chapter 14 in verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem. So we see already here in his name, Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness, that his name, that his name is king of righteousness, and he points to the true king of righteousness. Melchizedek is a, is a believer in the God of Noah, of Abel, and Abram. Um, uh, and Adam. What will be said of Abraham can be said of him here is that he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He is king of Salem. This is really cool. So Salem, um, we're not talking about Massachusetts here. There's no witch burnings going on. Um, Salem comes from the same Semitic word as shalom, meaning peace. That is why the author of Hebrews says he is, the king of, he, is, he is also the king of peace, king of righteousness and king of peace. Salem will be renamed in the time of David as Jerusalem. Jerusalem. He is the king of Jerusalem, the city of peace, the city of God. Um, he, is, he is in his title the king of peace, and once again, that's strange here, but in the first war, a king of peace comes to bless the victor. More paradoxically, Jesus Christ, the prince of peace, will come and have eternal and ultimate victory in all things. Salem is not Salem, Massachusetts, but it is Jerusalem. In the scriptures, it is the holy city. It is the city of the king. And most importantly, there will be a new Jerusalem in which the righteous will dwell. And we will be there. And we will not need the light of a sun. We will not need the light of a lamp. For God himself will be our light. And he will wipe every tear from our eyes. As we continue reading in verse 18, he brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. Bread and wine. I told my wife this, I was, I was going over this, I've read this a million times just like everybody else, and that should have stopped me in my tracks. The priest of God, who will be an illustration for Jesus Christ, who has a kingly anointing and a priestly anointing, brings out bread and wine. You know what we're going to do on the 19th of April? We're going to go through the Passover feast that they did in the book of Exodus, that they did, Jesus and his disciples did, but before 
Moses, before Aaron, before the priestly line, a priest of God comes to Abram, the father of the nation, their Messiah will come from, and he brings out bread and wine to bless him. So many generations, so many thousands of years later, our great high priest in the order of Melchizedek, Jesus Christ, will gather his disciples around. And we believe through them. The gates of, the, of New Jerusalem, they will, be, they, they will represent both of Israel and, of both, and the church. So that's the 12 apostles. We believe through them. Of course, we know one was, you know, betrayed the Lord and was replaced. We believe through them. So the high priest comes to our fathers and he brings out bread and wine and he blesses them. This is what I think is amazing. This is why I love doing communion. Because communion isn't just some religious act that we do. We are connecting in a real way. Blessing throughout all of the ages to the very end of the age and past it when we will eat the wedding, when we will eat the feast of the marriage supper of the Lamb. He brings out bread and wine. Our great high priest, Jesus Christ, in the Last Supper, in the, in, the Lord's, in the Lord's table, brings out bread, breaks it, and gives to his disciples, says, take and eat this. This is my body, which was broken for you. This is my blood, which was shed for you. And when Christ was on the cross, the sovereign hand of God used sinful men to break his body apart and to drain his blood for our blessing too. Melchizedek, he is a high priest of God, and he blesses Abram. It is one of the privileges of the clergy that God has instituted throughout the scripture. It's one of the reasons why I bless you every Sunday at the end of service. I take it from the scripture. It's one of my privileges as your pastor, as your shepherd, to get to do that for you, to bless you according to God Most High. We see here, Melchizedek is a priest of God Most High. It's like, how? And this is so... This is so much before Aaron, the Levitical line. Like Levi, where the Levitical line comes from, is Abram's great-grandson. And that's where the priests come from, and not until the time of Aaron when the law is given through Moses. So he's a priest of God Most High. Let me explain this for you. We are not so many generations after Noah. All of the world at one point in time knows that there is a God in heaven, and all of the world after that rejects him. We read today um, in Sunday school, we're going through the book of Romans. The book of Romans tells us how this comes about. Verse, chapter 1, verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images of mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. But not Melchizedek. Melchizedek is one of the few people on the face of the earth who still worshipped and was a priest of God Most High. El Elyon is the Hebrew word for God Most High. Isn't that, that amazing? That's the thing that we know that as, as believers, we know when there's another believer. I remember going to Africa and, and, and getting to fellowship with the believers over there. And if, although we grew up so much different, we were connected through something that none of us can really put our finger on other than the blood of Jesus Christ. Melchizedek blesses Abraham and he calls God 
El Elyon, God Most High. It's a name we haven't seen before this. He calls him El Elyon, which means the Most High God, the Supreme Being. No one above him, no one beside him. Melchizedek calls him the possessor of heaven and earth. Let me say something here. There's a false teaching that goes around. See, the Bible calls the devil the God of this age or the God of this world. It is talking about the culture of this world, as in do not love the world. It is not saying the earth itself, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He is the possessor of heaven and earth. He does not need earthly, heaven does not need earthly authority to enact its will. We'll see time and time again, God does what he pleases. Nebuchadnezzar, that's what Nebuchadnezzar said. He was king over all the earth. As far as he was concerned, God strikes him with madness. And at the end of it, he says he is in heaven and he does as he pleases. There's a false teaching that is grounded either in ignorance or in Satan himself that the devil owns the earth and that God can't do anything without earthly permission. Satan may be the god of this culture and of this world as in the culture of this world, but it is truly my father's world. He is the possessor of it. Melchizedek blesses Abram because God has given him victory over his enemies. And, and Melchizedek sees this because there's no way he could have had victory without that. Versus the blessing of, of Melchizedek we see here. Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Tithing's a hot topic in church, Right? I don't think I've preached on tithing since I've been here. You know, I really don't need to either. You guys are awesome. I don't know everybody personally. I don't check your giving statements or anything like that. But I can just see how our tithes and offerings have grown, that you guys already get this. But it's here in the text, so I need to preach on it. Tithing is a hot topic in church. Most churches believe that tithing is something New Testament Christians should do. There are others who believe, because it's not mentioned in the New Testament, that it must be part of the ceremonial law of God and thus done away with or fulfilled by Jesus Christ. I think verse 20 really puts a wrench in that idea because tithing is instituted before the law. If it is before the law, then you cannot say it's part of the ceremonial law of God because this is before the ceremonial law of God. It is just the right response to the blessing of the Lord. Amen. It's just the right response to the blessing of the Lord. The concept of tithing goes so far and wide into every culture of the earth. You know, in feudal times, we, you had the tribute that you would have the feudal lords pay to their, to their king, emperor, whomever. And what that meant was that the king, emperor, whomever owned the land you had but he let you have charge over it. He let you enjoy the benefits of it. You just gave a small tribute to him. That's what tithing really is, is that it's an understanding that God owns it all. He's given me all, and I give a small portion back. It's one of the reasons why the church, why the temple even exists, is to give the people of God an opportunity to show their graciousness, to show not their graciousness, but to show their worship to the Lord in this manner. And it's also very necessary because Jesus said, where are money is, that is where our heart is. Verse 20, um, long before the ceremonial law is given, we see tithing here with, um, with Abram to Melchizedek. It can't be done away with the ceremonial law because it existed before the ceremonial law. It's the right response to the blessings of God. It's done in joy and gladness. Melchizedek doesn't demand the tithe. Abram gives the tithe. What's also neat here is how Abraham 
What he's doing here is he's looking to outbless Melchizedek, knowing that as he blesses Melchizedek, he'll be, he is honoring the high priest of God, and by honoring God, he himself will be honored. He not only desires the blessing of God through this, he becomes, he becomes poor. Now, by the way, he has tons and tons of money. Don't, he's, not, he's not giving himself into the poor house here. But he, but he is becoming poor, but becoming richer in spirit. Now, right after this, in verses 21 through 24, we have the king of Sodom, Bera. You might be wondering, why are you calling him Bera? It's not here in the text. It's earlier on the text last week. We went over all those really hard to pronounce names. I made Becca do it because I didn't want to. Bera's an easy one. He's the king of Sodom. And in verse 21, he approaches Abram. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. I mentioned early in my sermon here about the spin doctors talking about two king, two princes, but Abram has two kings before him. Both of them have blessings, but he picks the king of righteousness and of peace over the king of sin and greed. This seems like Bera is being, the king of Sodom is being very generous towards Abram, but he's not. I mentioned this before, right? That Abram's the one who won the victory. Now he wasn't, it was the Lord. But as far as anybody else is concerned, it was the martial might of Abram who has his 318 fighting men who didn't run away at the first sign of conflict, unlike so- the king of Sodom's men. He also has three other allies behind him. And he can say right here, if this is what he wants, if what he wants is money and land, he can take it right now. And the king of, so- and the king of Sodom is offering him the riches as long as he gets the people, really, it's not such a huge offer. Abram could decide, I'm keeping both, but of course he doesn't. This is a deadly trap that is dressed nicely. Most, the best kind of bait tricks the, the, the prey into believing it is tasty and safe. The offers, the offers you can't refuse are generally the offers you can't excuse. Abraham has made the mistake in the past, chasing after the wealth and blessing of the wicked. But now, well, he was in Egypt, but now he makes a better choice. He is trusting that God truly is Yahweh Jireh, his provider. And he is trusting in God and God alone for his sustenance, for his security, and for his blessing. Verse 22, but Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal scrap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. Verse 22 is interesting. Verse 22 is interesting because before this, we didn't know something very crucial to the battle that we saw throughout the rest of this chapter. We know that Abram trained 318 fighting men in his own family. We know that he has three allies. Here's something we don't know, that the Lord is his ally because he's been praying through this entire time. Let me go back to Melchizedek being priest of God Most High. We don't know anything about him. So I want to say this, and I want you to take it in context. The Bible is not exhaustive over everything that God is doing in the world during the time of the biblical events, but it is sufficient Word of God for our life, for faith and conduct. So we weren't told before this that he was praying, but we are told here that he was praying, so we know he was praying. He says, I've lifted my hand to God that I would not, I would not take the spoils of this war. I won't take anything that belongs to the king of wickedness. 
Because he's believing, he's trusting in the king of righteousness. He's trusting in God most high. He uses the same words that Melchizedek, the priest of God, uses. You know, going back to Melchizedek, he's a priest of God most high. You know what the priest's primary responsibility is in the Old Testament? It's to connect, to represent the people to God and God to the people. Once per year when they had a temple, the priest, the high priest would go in there after he's made the sacrifice, take the blood of the offering and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Our great high priest, Jesus Christ, has gone into the temple of God eternally for us after he ascends to the Father and both day and night makes offering for us of his own blood. He connects the people to God and God to the people. He represents the people of God and God to the people. And we see here Abram learning something about God that he is the most high and possessor of heaven and earth and that he will not trust, he will not love the things of this world or the world. What makes you rich? So many will say that they are trusting God for their provision. Then an opportunity comes along to, quote-unquote, get ahead. It just requires you to be flexible about the commands of God. Just compromise a little bit. To trust in someone or something other than God for your security, for your blessing. Say, well, if I live with my girlfriend or boyfriend, we'll save money. We can't make it on our own, despite the fact that we were making it on our own before we were living together. And we don't want to rush into marriage. You know, it sounds, so very, it sounds so very reasonable. Or how about this? How about this? There was this scam going on about uh, five or six years ago. It's probably still going on. It was somebody will call uh, somebody who is elderly, and they'll be like, hey, I'm your great nephew Timmy, and I'm in Timbuktu, and I'm about to go into prison unless you wire me, you know, $300. And the poor person on the other land, they're like, Timmy, I don't want you to go to jail in Timbuktu. I'll, I'll go to Federal Express and I'll send you a money order. It was a scam. Timmy's not in Timbuktu. He's not going anywhere. But they fill this person with so much fear and they take advantage of them. And here's what was really reprehensible. So the person would then either take cash or a money order out. They'd put it in a book and they would send it to an address. And then a third party, an American, would pick up that book they would take their cut, and they would send it on to the scammer. Well, unfortunately, the federal government couldn't find all the scammers, but they could find a lot of these middle people. And every one of them said almost the same thing. Well, I didn't know what it was about. Yes, you did. You just wanted the money. You think money just falls out of the thin air? People are just sending money in books? You knew what you were doing. You didn't want to know. And that's a big difference. Who are you depending? If you're depending on yourself, if you're depending on this world, you will, you will compromise any value, to get what you truly, any value to get what you truly want. But if you refuse the blessings of this world and choose to decide the blessings of God, you will get from God friendship with him, which is the greatest thing on the face of this world or in the universe. You know you can either have the blessing of the king of Sodom or the king of Salem, but you can't have both. You cannot serve two masters. You make the decision. Lot wanted the blessing of Sodom. And he got captured and enslaved for it. Now here's an interesting thing about Lot. We read this last week. Let me remind you. So Lot, he picks the fertile Jordan land. He camps by Sodom. And by chapter 14, he's living in Sodom. And then he gets captured when Sodom loses a war. So you would think, 
Danger, Will Robinson, danger. Stop living in Sodom. What is wrong with you? The lot goes back to Sodom. He'd been spared. This is what we just read. He'd been spared losing everything. So you'd think, time to move away from Sodom. It's not a good place. Uncle Abram doesn't want anything to do with Sodom. Why do I want something to do with Sodom? And a couple chapters later, he loses everything. He'd been spared once. Should have been a wake-up call. Sometimes, some, some of us, God spared us in our own stupidity. It was our wake-up call to go back to him, to go back to where it's safe. Instead, we go back to Sodom. And then we're like, oh, why did God allow this to happen? He just lets you do what you want. That's what he did. It's not his fault, it's our fault. So Lot, he, he goes back to Sodom, even though he's been spared this, it should have been his wake-up call, but he doesn't, and he loses every, all of his possessions, he loses his wife, and his own daughters take advantage of him. He was in the place of blessing before this, but he gets into a place of cursing because he would rather have the blessing of the king of Sodom than the king of Salem. Abram accepted the blessing from the king of Salem, and he got friendship with God. Abraham lived what we read in 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For, the, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eye and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. When I was uh, preaching through the seven deadly sins, I know that um, some pastors don't even like mentioning sin. They'll say mistakes. About every year I do a, like a seven-week series on sin, which is great. It's actually encouraging because we know that what we're saved from. We know that we have Holy Spirit power to conquer sin. So I was going over the seven deadly sins and I got to the sin of gluttony. And I had this illustration here about... Which table do you want to feed you? The table of the Lord? Or the table of the world? No offense to McDonald's, it's the only fast food in town. <laughs> what do you look to fill you, to sustain you? When I was preaching on gluttony, it came from experience. Because the Lord had dealt with me on this. That when I was sad, I would turn to food. When I was happy, I would turn to food. When I, was, when I was paralyzed with indecision, I would get something to eat. I would turn to food because food was my God. And God had to deal with me on that, the true God of heaven, that it was idolatry. It's because I wanted, I wanted the blessing of the king of Sodom rather than the blessing of the king of Salem. And God, and it, was a, it was like this like time where it was so difficult for me, but God did such a work in me through this that what I wanted for to, to sustain me was not the things of this world. Now, you, now, I use the thing of gluttony here, but use it for anything else. Anything you are looking to when you're sad, when you're happy, when you have great joy or great despair, if you are turning to anybody other than the Lord, that is your God. And you need to amend that because it will not fill you. It will only leave you empty. Which king are you depending on for the promise? King Melchizedek didn't know about the promise Abram had, but he represented it 
to him being a priest of the Most High. That's what Abram wanted to depend on. In the next chapter, Abram will tell God that he doesn't understand how this blessing will come about, but in verse 6 of chapter 15, it will use this one phrase that in the New Testament writers will be like, that's what it's about. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So I ask you today, which kingdom do you choose? And we have to choose every day. Did you know this? That the Lord Jesus Christ tells us in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, And he said to um, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Daily. Now, I'm not talking about salvation. We're not like unsaved and resaved every single day, no matter where you're coming from. But our joy, we make a decision to pursue joy or destruction every single day to take up our cross and follow him, to pursue joy or to pursue the things of this world. It'd be great if it was a one-time decision with Abram right here. He's choosing the king of, king of Salem. He's choosing the king of righteousness over the king of sin and despair. But in a couple chapters later, he and Sarai, his wife, decide, we're going to help God out. We're going to become our own savior. And we're going to take her maidservant and force her to marry Abram and have a child with him doesn't turn out well. You know, there's many decisions you can make that won't lose your salvation, but you'll lose your joy. So daily we decide to follow him. Daily we decide to pick up our cross and follow him. Who are you, who are you depending on to satisfy you? Chapter 14 is faith at work. In chapter 15, we see truly into the very soul of Abram. Chapter 14, we see the evidence of faith in his life. There should be evidence of faith in your life. You say, you believe God, show me. Oh, I've got an inner testimony. Great for you. But the whole world should see what Abram sees, is that you're depending on the Lord instead of the world. You can't have an encounter. If, if you were late today and you're like, oh, Pastor Jason, I slipped on the ice, broke my head open, Blood and brains everywhere. Sorry, that's a bit graphic for a Sunday morning. I feel like, you're a liar. And you're like, what are you talking about? It's like, your head looks fine. You couldn't, you couldn't have had an encounter with something like that and remain unchanged. You can't have an encounter with the God who spoke the universe into motion and be exactly the way you were before. You can't say that you've been remade in his likeness and his image spiritually and still walk the same path you used to before. You have faith. Let's see your faith at work. Worship team, would you come up at this time? Communion was last week, and I read from our chapter last week about it, that the very first communion where the high priest of God blesses Abram with wine and bread, and our great high priest blessed us with his body and his blood During our time of reflection, during our time where we have a moment to reflect on God's word, we have to ask ourselves, who am I depending on? A way of figuring this out, what did I do last time something really bad happened in my life? Did I go into the temple of God, go into the church, go into my prayer closet and cry out to the Lord? Or did I get upset and start posting stuff? Or did, I, or did I go to the fridge and get out a bunch of stuff I shouldn't be eating? Or did I, whatever it might be. You know, I think alcohol is a great picture of this. 
You talk to an alcoholic and they'll say the thing. It's like it used to be a drink after work and then it was the drink before work, during work. It was, I drank when I was happy, I drank when I was sad. If you can replace that with something else, that is something God wants out of you today. It's that secret and unclean thing. Now, if you don't know the Lord today, what I mean, if you are not confident, if you were to die and you would go to heaven, then today fall upon the mercies of the Lord and he will save you. Believe the Lord Jesus Christ is who he says he is and it will be credit to you as righteousness. But if you are a believer today, I want, you to, I want your joy to be to the full. I want you to get out anything that is causing your joy in the Lord to be hampered. Would you please stand as we sing our last song?